Before we start the podcast today, we have a live workshop coming up. Just go to storybrand.com to register. It takes place April 6th and 7th. You actually fly in on the 5th. There's a dessert that night. But the 6th and 7th, we have a workshop for business leaders of all type. If you are running a company, own a company, or manage the marketing of a company, or in charge of growing a company, you want to come to this marketing workshop. Even if you're not in the marketing department, what it really shows you is what your marketing and your messaging need to look like. How do you talk about your organization? What words do you use? And then where specifically, where do you put those words in order to get the best return on your investment? If you want to figure out your marketing, not over six months, eight months, 10 years, you want to figure it out over 48 hours, register at storybrand.com. When you implement those changes, you will see a difference. Not only that, we have coaches in the room who will tell you whether or not you're doing it right. You've listened to the Building a Story Brand audiobook. You bought the Marketing Made Simple book. You know you need to implement it. You've actually done some work on it, but you're just not confident you're doing it right. Coaches in the room will help you refine your message so that it works and you can leave with confidence. Storybrand.com is where you register. We will see you Sunday, April 5th at the dessert, and then Monday, April 6th. That morning, we will get started. By the time you leave, you'll have a clear message. And you'll have the skeleton of a sales funnel that you can hand to your marketing team and execute so that you get a return on your investment. Storybrand.com. Register today. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., today we're talking about nonprofits, how to raise money, and how to use story to do so. Yes, which and we love, all those things. <laughs> much of it overlaps with anybody who runs any kind of company, but specifically, we just have a ton of nonprofits come to our live marketing workshop. Yeah. There's no difference. They get just as much as everybody else. Yep. But- we want to actually spend a little time specifically talking about just the ins and outs, the the inside language, all that kind of stuff about nonprofit work and growing your nonprofit. Yes. And there's some things that we have noticed. Yeah. And you've actually you've created quite a little algorithm yeah. <laughs> of the kinds of stories you need to tell based on what the type. kind of nonprofit yeah. that you're working with. Can you just get into it for yeah. us? Yeah. So all nonprofits are not created equal in the sense that they do different types of work. And I actually learned this from working with an organization called Food for the Hungry. Mm-hmm. There are really four different types of nonprofit work. Relief, development, empowerment, and justice. And if you think of it in terms of the old adage of like give a man a fish type of thing, right? right? So relief is give a man a fish. Like if a child is dying and a shot can save them, you give them a shot, right? It's relief. You give a man a fish. So so Sarah McLaughlin showing sad dogs with it's, her guitar. It's immediate. We need to save these we dogs. We need to rescue these now. dogs. Relief. Now. I've wondered that you know that, that ad has has been on for a long time. Yeah. I always dive across the living room for the remote because I love dogs so much it's too painful. But my but you're saying it works. It works because it's relief. Because it's relief in the short term. So it has to be short term huh. relief. So that's one of the things basically well let me describe the four types. There's okay. relief that's immediate. You need immediate relief. Give a man a fish. Development is teach a man how to fish. So you're like basically it goes next level. So it's like not only is this a shot, but here's how to take care of yourself, right? Right. Then empowerment is teach a man to think about fishing. That's like next level of them creating their own sustainable ways of improvement. And then there's justice. And that is tear down the fence around the pond, right? Right. <laughs> so we have relief, 
development, empowerment, and justice. Those are really the four main types of work that nonprofits do. Yeah. Now, when it comes to storytelling, there is actually a lot of research that shows if you show a sad picture, like a, like the dogs that are dying or children dying or, you know, where they yeah. used to show a people lot of the hungry. Yeah. people who are hungry, yeah. that that will raise more money. We, compared to showing a, say, a smiling happy dog or smiley happy like family, the any relief situation that the emergency needs to happen, a sad, hard story where you focus on the problem of the story and the heaviness of the story, it will raise more money. However, once you move into development and empowerment, you actually start losing people because they turn off from those type of heavy engagements. Right. So you cannot, the heavy, like, people are dying, people are dying, dogs, you know, in, in particular, like in Sarah McLaughlin's commercial case, dogs are, are, are dying, yeah. da, da, da. Well, when we see that 20 times, our brain actually turns off from that. Yeah. And we cannot stay in that relief mode telling sad stories. You need to breathe. You need to breathe a little bit. And so you actually need to show smiley, happy people. You need to show aspirational stories of people who've overcome problems and move forward. When you want to raise money in the development and empowerment space, you need to show happy stories of people who've actually overcome, right. who have bought into development and bought into the empowerment and have moved forward. If you're in development and empowerment space and you continue to try to only tell the really sad stories, you will not raise money. Hmm. Now, when you get to the justice phase, you actually can do both. Because a lot of times there's an immediate justice that needs to be overcome, but a systemic long term, you actually can't live in the harshness itself. So this is just kind of what I found basically putting together a bunch of research on fundraising. Yeah. And then my understanding of how story works and how the brain works is that basically this theory that you can, in relief situations – tell sad, hard stories because it's short term and that will raise more money. When you move to development and empowerment stories, you have to tell aspirational stories, people who've overcome and are happy and have already moved beyond. And when you're working in justice, you want to tell both, but you can't only do the sad stories for a long time. When you're doing justice, you have to do some sad and yeah, people some just they'll, they'll start checking out. Yeah. It, it, you know, and, and I'll do that too. You just kind of go, I've got to desensitize myself to this. Yeah. Maybe after I do something, after yeah, I send some money. Because there's so much pain in the world. There is, and, and you, so. yeah, so it, that's a that's very very helpful though. Yeah, super helpful to all our nonprofit friends. Well, you, I, we have hundreds of nonprofits who've come through the Story Brand Marketing Workshop. It's been helpful to all of them. I'm thinking of Living Water out of Houston, Charity Water out of New York. Uh, I'm thinking of International Justice Mission out of yep. Washington D.C. We spent a lot of time with those guys. Um, thinking of even the 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 uh, city of David archaeological dig yeah. in Jerusalem that I just got back from. It's one of my favorite things is to go in and sort of, sort of cherry pick organizations yeah. and really help them out. <laughs> one of them is Rescue Freedom. Yeah, and Rescue Freedom. My wife Betsy Miller is chairman of the board for an anti-human yes. trafficking organization yes. called Rescue Freedom that we love. We host a dinner here in Nashville every year on behalf and uh, of Rescue Freedom. And the CEO of Rescue Freedom is a guy named Jeremy Valorand. Yep, and he's a dynamic guy. He's an amazing storyteller. And so as a gift to our nonprofit community who've come to StoryBrand and who love the we've been helpful to. We just thought we'd just dedicate an entire podcast to you guys. And yeah. our guest today is Jeremy Valoran. And we specifically talk a little bit about what they are doing. But then I asked Jeremy, let's pull back the curtain here and tell us how some of this works, yeah. what sort of marketing tools you're using, those kinds of things. And he really helped out quite a bit. Yeah. And so uh, with no further ado, here is my conversation with Jeremy Valoran from Rescue Freedom. Yeah. 
Jeremy Valorant, thanks for coming on. Don, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. You know, you and I have been friends a long time. Betsy's obviously chairman of the board over there at Rescue Freedom. And uh, you've incorporated a lot of storytelling and story brand into your nonprofit. But I want to know specifically, you know, when we invite people, we do an, an annual dinner in Nashville where we invite kind of our community to hear what's going on with Rescue Freedom and what you guys are doing in the areas of human trafficking. And uh, you always give a speech there, and you're just a great storyteller. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you use story in growing your nonprofit? Well, first of all, before we get into that, Jeremy, tell us from your perspective, what does Rescue Freedom do? Yeah, so uh, in the simplest form, Rescue Freedom's fighting human trafficking around the world. So we're setting people free. Uh, We have a a sort of tagline that says, ending slavery one life at a time. Hmm. Uh, So for us, that captures actually this tension of we are ending slavery around the world. But we can never forget that it's one life at a time. In other words, this isn't just an issue we're taking on. These are people. These right. are real lives being transformed. And so that that's sort of the simplest, you know, ending slavery one life at a time. That's what we're about. And you guys, you know, to, to let everybody know, you, you, you have some safe houses around the world. And uh, my wife has visited uh, a couple of those, a few of those. They're really beautiful places of, of a lot of young women, but also young men. Uh, who have been rescued from traffickers, specifically sex traffickers, and who had been used uh, in in that environment, that horrific environment. And these girls are dealing with trauma. They're dealing with a lot of things, but their their lives are returning to normal because of the care that you are actually giving them. That's one of the things that you're involved in. You were also just at the White House, and uh, you and I know John Richmond pretty well. And so there's you're you're also involved in helping much larger institutions figure out this problem and do something about it. What, what else specifically are you guys working on? Yeah, so for us, we sort of see it as this continuum. If we were to, uh, you know, you, you remember as a kid when you'd line up dominoes on a table and you'd knock them over and you'd try to make a chain reaction of dominoes. Yes. So we sort of see it, we see the fight against human trafficking as sort of a series of dominoes. If, if we were to try to knock over the whole row, the last one falling would be, you know, abolition. It would be the end of slavery as we know it. And so for us, we really identify that the critical linchpin in a community in order to, to sort of set those dominoes up is meaningful rescue and restoration is if there's no hope for victims in the community, you're not going to have any incentive for, for instance, law enforcement to enforce the laws. Because if they're going out on the streets and finding victims and trying to help them, but there's nobody that's going to actually care for them and take them through a process of, of trauma recovery or empowerment or vocational training. Law enforcement aren't incentivized if they if they just pick up a woman, they try to prosecute the trafficker. And by the time they go to court, the, the woman's already been re-trafficked because there was no way out for her. So we really look at that whole ecosystem. We want to we want to essentially build, you know, the components. We want to line up all those dominoes, which includes the prosecution side of it, and it can Im- include how do we prevent, you know, the vulnerable from being trafficked in the first place. But we can't do any of that until we have a pathway to restoration. So as you mentioned, we work we start with typically safe houses. Uh, right now, we're in 20 countries around the world making sure there's a pathway to restoration. And once that's in place, we can start to line up those other dominoes to say, okay, how do we expand prevention efforts to the vulnerable? How do we make sure there's legal services in place so that traffickers are going to jail? Because you can't rescue your way out of human trafficking as an issue. Eventually, you have to enforce laws. People have to go to jail. So it's sort of building out those dominoes. But for us, it's intentionally saying we're going to start with meaningful restoration because if there's no hope, um, you know, legislators, if, they, if they're not hearing testimonies from survivors who have es- escaped, you know, almost any legislative effort that I've seen anywhere in the world was triggered by survivors saying, hey, here's my story. Here's what happened to me. Here's how I escaped. And here's how we can go back and get to the root of the problem. 
Um, so for us, we really lean hard on that restoration as the as the linchpin. You know, Jimmy, I just want to point something out. It, it was important for you to say what Rescue Freedom does. This this podcast is really about communication and growing a nonprofit. Everybody understood exactly what you just said. I don't think anybody was lost. Let me just ask you though. How hard did you have to work? How many hours did you have to put in to really get what you just did down and then execute it without confusing people? Yeah. And was that a, was that a process? Is that something that we need to work on if oh, yeah. we're running a nonprofit? Yeah, and and you know, I mean, there's a reason why if people if the, if people go through the story brand, I remember a few years ago when I went through the story brand framework. There's a reason why when you finish that course and you give people the 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 one page brand transcript, you give them a huge stack, right? It's not like here's your one time, here you go. Yeah, it's you get like a post-it <laughs> note stack of brand scripts That's right. because. The reality is, is, you know, with each new season, hopefully, you know, every organization is adapting and improving their strategies. And, you know, when we first started, it was almost exclusively about the safe house. It was that's where we're starting. We didn't have the narrative of sort of this this domino idea of of how do we help people understand in a really simple, quick you know, way that this is a huge issue. Um, we just started with, hey, let's help get people out of brothels and into homes. And, uh, and, you know, we had a stack of brand scripts to kind of refine that story. And then with each kind of iteration, we kind of try to go back to the basics. But, but part of it, Don, and, and I've learned this from you, and, you know, I think we probably could point to a, 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 an older source too, but there's a concept that I try to like live by in, in, in how we do our story branding and, and how we do our, our storytelling is I really believe that in everything we do, and again, I think you live this out better than most, but I think in life where there is no analogy, there's no truth. You mean it's hard for us to understand what the truth is without some sort of metaphorical framework? Is that what you mean? Yeah, like I think we need to. So, for instance, the example of the dominoes. Yeah. It's, you know, everybody can connect with with the dominoes. It's um, like when, when you go through a, a story brand framework, for instance, I'll never forget how you would illustrate every point you made. You would illustrate it with a movie clip to illustrate something about the human experience that proves true in Tommy Boy or in a, in a commercial or in Star Wars. Um, you know, obviously, we, we would probably point to, you know, a first century rabbi. Uh, you know, we'd point yeah. to Jesus to say, you know, every, almost everything he said, like, and, and he would start with the biggest things. He would say, the kingdom of God is like, well, man, I can't imagine any, any bigger, like, well, well, what's the kingdom of God? What does that even mean? What is that like? And then he would tell a story about farming, or he would tell a story about baking or treasure or planting seeds or a fishing net, like everything, even you could, even theoretically, like one of the greatest teachers in the history of humanity would distill the biggest principles he had down to fishing or farming. And, and so for me, that's actually been one of the hardest disciplines is that if I can't distill the the fight against human trafficking down into simple stories that my seven-year-old could understand, hmm. like lining up dominoes on the dining room table, then I've missed the truth. Yeah. I think, what is it that Einstein said? If you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how important has, has it been to tell stories? You know, we, we can study story structure all day, but at the end of the day, you have to actually tell stories and you tell amazing stories about some of the young women and, and young men who have been rescued out of, out of human trafficking how important, and I think every every head of nonprofit listening to this or every marketer for a nonprofit understands the importance of telling stories. I just want to hear it from your perspective. What's the difference between a fundraiser in which you don't tell stories and a fundraiser in which you do? Yeah, I, I, I really, I mean, I think you nailed it just even in the question of, of yeah. stories being the, the central component of, you know, at the end of the day, every one of us, 
you know, is, is writing a story. We wake up in the morning and we step into our own story and we're looking for, I think most of life is a response to the invitations around us. I think good brands extend invitations into their story. And so we wake up and we see, you know, we see a, we see a commercial or we see a, you know, a billboard, or we walk into the office and somebody says, Hey, I want to tell you about my weekend. And, and they're inviting you into, you know, these, their story for a moment, their story of their weekend or their story that I I found for me. And this is, I I think always been true since I was a kid. I just, I connect most with people in their story. You know, somebody could talk at me and speak, speak facts to me or speak truths. But when you sit with somebody who invites you into their story, you know, it's the most ancient form of communication. Like long before we had written language as humans, we were sitting around fires telling stories to capture meaning, to capture connection. How are you deciding when you're actually, when you're actually thinking of the many stories that you could tell, for instance, at a fundraiser, how are you deciding which one to tell? I mean, is it just, is it an intuitive process where you say, this one really captured my heart, or this one is most recently something very beautiful that has taken place. You know, you've got something coming up. Let's say you're speaking to a church or something. you got several thousand people in the audience, and you know you're going to plug a story into this part of that message. How are you deciding which story to tell? Are there, are there common elements where you say, these are the ones that tend to land and engage the audience the most and invite the biggest response? Yeah, I think a big part of it for me, you, you did an interview a while back with a, a Nashville singer-songwriter, and I remember they were talking about writing a song about a town. And the way they described it was, I wanted to write a song where when I was singing about the town, every single person thought, that could be my town. Yeah, Like, that takes me back to the town I grew up in. You know, I think in, in this kind of work or in humanitarian work generally, you can tell these really sensational stories where somebody could be like, holy smokes, you were in this crazy place. Like, I've never, I couldn't even imagine being there and doing that. And that sounds so heroic or that sounds so otherworldly. But I think there's more power in where some you tell a story in a way that's real to you and human to you where anybody could be like, wow, yeah, that's how I would have felt. That's what yeah. I would have done. That's- and that could have happened to me. If I had been born in that country in this time, that would have been me. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, we even see that with, you know, I think I learned that starting with both those that, well, specifically with those that were ser- serving as well as those who are doing the serving is that you want people to feel like they can relate to both, both the person kind of coming in and saying, wow, I, I see a need and I want to help. Cause I think deep down, we all have that reaction. If we see, like, if we actually see a need right in front of us, like if, if, a, if a little kid falls and, you know, hurts themselves right in front of us and we don't see anybody else doing anything, most of us are going to be like, oh, hey, hey, little guy, let me help. You know, we, we're wired for that. And so you want people to connect with that, but we're also wired to want to connect with people in our moment of need. We all hope that somebody's going to reach out a loving hand, yeah. that somebody's going to be there to cheer us on. You know, so it's, it's connecting with that. I've learned the real nuance for me, and I, and I don't know that I've mastered this yet in this work, but believe it or not, there's, there's also a human side to the exploiters, like mm. to those who are perpetrating mm. and often, and we've seen some of them have profound transformation and to come out of, you know, have these eye-opening epiphanies to say, oh my word, I, I'm a part of the problem and to humanize them in a way that people are like, wow, in a different set of circumstances, if I had grown up being abused and exploited, maybe I would have ended up there. And how do we help them too? How do we provide a pathway out for them too? It sounds like the controlling idea is, is you're, you're choosing stories that other people can find themselves in or place themselves in and feel that this easily could have happened to me and you're getting a human response 
it seems like that's the controlling idea. I'm curious. You you not only tell stories, you actually invite people into a story. You know, I, I was uh, recently at a Whole Foods and I'm checking out and I'm wearing your sweatshirt. And uh, the lady said, tell me about this organization. And I told her a little bit. And she said, I, I really want to get involved. What can I do? And, uh, you know, I told her the website and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that she can do is one of these activities that you actually put out there. One of them is every year you guys climb Mount Rainier. And you're a, you're a mountain climber. You just like doing that for fun anyway. But I'm curious as to why you incorporate actual events that create community and difficult challenges into the, the very fabric of raising money for rescue freedom. Well, that's so that's the climbing is actually part of how my whole journey started about 12 years ago when I when I first encountered this issue and I actually got to visit a safe house um, in India. I was traveling with a friend and it was just a, a trip for fun. Uh, I didn't know we were going to get to be a part of some amazing humanitarian work. And, and I met these kids that had been rescued from brothels and wanted to help. And and so I that summer was already already going to do a climb. And it sort of dawned on me like, well, hey, people do all kinds of stuff for fundraisers. They run marathons for cancer research. So let's turn this into a climb. And it became this really bonding experience for those who participated. And then we had to kind of find an organization to support. And and then a bunch of friends were like, well, when's the next climb? I was like, uh, I guess, <laughs> okay, well, let's do another one. And you know, some something just so profoundly impactful about being a part of impact as a community. I mean, I think most would say, you know, oh, we're all wired, you know, to have purpose. We're all wired to have meaning. I mean, there's bo- best-selling books about having purpose and having meaning. We all know that, but I would go one step further to say we're actually wired to have purpose in the context of community. I would agree with that, and Viktor Frankl would agree with that too, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, that there's there's a far cry between purpose and purpose in community. Hmm. And, and so for me, a lot of it is, uh, I, I knew how to create community on a mountain because, you know, you're forced to, you're, you're tied together, literally you're in a tent. Uh, but what's been cool is people that have come out that know how to commu- create community in other spaces. So we had a friend that was like, I'm never getting on a mountain, but I love hosting dinner parties. Hmm. And so she, she said, I'm going to create, I'm going to take that model and I'm going to do dinner parties where I host the best date night you've ever had with like 16 other people. It's a five course meal in our orchard. And then I'm going to just say, donate what you would have spent on a date night to the cause. And she's raised tens of thousands of dollars creating community. But what I love is actually people have found community. Like people have found their tribe in that. There are people now that they do life together. And the, these freedom dinners are, are a part of it. And I feel really honored that we get to be a catalyst. But I'm just as excited about these people who now have a real depth of community that feel like they're changing the world together as friends. And they're doing all kinds of other cool stuff that I just get to hear about that's way beyond Rescue Freedom. Like that's a huge win. I'll be right back with the rest of my interview with Jeremy Valoran in just a moment. First, I want you to listen to my new friend Sandra talk about how she took her business from 30,000 to 300,000 in just one year using what she learned at StoryBrand. In the travel industry, I help travel agents to get a consistent stream of new clients and I help travel brands like cruise lines, hotels, and resorts to work with the travel agents to build their businesses. As experienced as I am, I thought it was gonna be so easy to build a profitable business. My first year was a complete bust. So I read Building the Story Brand, and I went from literally $30,000 to $300,000. It was almost a no-brainer. If I can do 30 to 300 with a book, what can I do at a workshop two days with coaches in the VIP experience. I'm here because I had a confused message and I need a clarity. If I'm not clear on how to express myself, then my industry is not clear on why they should hire me. 
I was in tears on my first day here because I nailed something that I haven't been able to do in my entire career. And that was, I took my message from super confusing to super clear. And I can't wait to have my first seven figure year. If you want to attend StoryBrand and experience something similar to Sandra, register today at storybrand.com. We'd love to help you clarify your message and get your marketing right. Storybrand.com. It's so important, especially with an with an issue like human trafficking, that there is, you know, maybe I'm not even saying this. There's, it seems like there's so little that the average person can actually do. It's an enormous issue, but you know, without a badge and a gun, it's very hard to do something. Without being able to get a plane ticket overseas and go into some of these districts and and help these women out, and even if you do, that creates a lot of complications. If you don't have a safe house, it's a massive issue. But it seems like there's a giant fog in between us and how we do something about it. You guys have actually given people a way to raise money that is active, it involves sacrifice, and it creates community, all these really beautiful things. How important is it for the other nonprofit leaders out there to understand the importance of of certainly we'll take a check, but we, we also would love to create this this way that you can be active and do other things that aren't necessarily related to the cause, except they're fundraising, but they also give us a feeling, and in fact, are, it is true, that we are taking action. How important was that in the development of the organization? Yeah, and you know, this has been a challenge for me in, in entering, leaving the business world and entering the nonprofit space. And, and maybe this is a moment where I could encourage and maybe even challenge some of my nonprofit friends and colleagues out there, because what I found really quickly when I got into the nonprofit world was Often nonprofits start because someone is passionate about a, a cause or an issue where, you know, let's take the example of maybe it's they start bringing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to the homeless in their community. And they're just doing it because they care about these people and they want to help. They want to do something to respond. And then all of a sudden it grows and, and there's a group that shows up every day for their peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Right. And then the person can't afford it. And so a friend says, well, hey, I'll donate, but I need the tax receipt. And so then it's like, oh, okay, I got it. Well, now I got to do this. And oh man, now I got to raise money. Well, I didn't start this thing to raise money. I started it to help homeless people, right. but I have to, I have to raise money in order to sustain it. And so a lot of times donors are often, in my experience, treated as an kind of an afterthought and almost, this might sound harsh, but sometimes almost as a necessary evil where it's like, man, I, I really don't care that much about building community. I wish I didn't have to do this so I could just do the thing serving these vulnerable people that I really care about. So it starts in this beautiful place, but then you can end up with this false dichotomy of like, oh, who am I choosing between? Am I am I donor? You know, there's there. I learned there was like this bad word in the nonprofit sector when I got into it, where people would say, oh, are you donor driven? Which meant, are you selling your soul? Are you selling out the people <laughs> you're helping in order yeah. to give the donors what they want? Because they don't know what's best. You know what's best, and you have to protect your people, like protect those you serve from those donors who just like are driven by. They just want. You know, it's about them. It's about their money and what they're getting in exchange. And I think that's such a lie. I think it's such a fallacy that there needs to be attention there because, you know, most of these people that are, are coming to us and getting engaged, they're looking for community. They're looking for impact. They're looking for purpose. And we have a little bit of an advantage in the fight against human trafficking in that one thing that's unique with our fight, as opposed to maybe the, the fight against malaria, for instance, is human trafficking is 100% man-made. We made this problem. 
this isn't perpetuated by nature or biology or, you know, viruses. Um, it's not natural disasters. It's not related to the environment. It is completely human beings making decisions to exploit others. So because of that, there is an inherent element that, that's baked into our DNA that says community is actually part of the cure. Because if you create communities of people who don't exploit and communities of people who care for each other and love each other and also care for the vulnerable and have an eye for the vulnerable, they're going to be those vulnerable are going to be more resilient and less likely to be exploited. The, the people in that group and in our issue, it's mostly men who are buyers, but the men in that community are going to be more aware of the issue, less likely to go out and exploit and purchase, you know, purchase a human being. So. Community isn't just a means to raising money. Community is actually a means to ending slavery. That's great. So it's it is it isn't indirect. You're saying it's direct. Yeah, and and I think until you see community as part of the mission, not as a means to fund the mission, you're missing it. You're fundamentally if community if donors are a means to fund your mission and not a core part of your mission, I think you're missing it. Oh, so that's important. That's important whether you're a nonprofit or not. All right. I want to ask a couple questions specifically about marketing. What sort of marketing tools do you guys actually use? When you sit down and say, here's our marketing plan for the year, I realize you're a nonprofit. It's a little bit different, but I'm just curious. Do you guys use Facebook ads? Do you have Facebook groups? Do you use social media? How are you getting the word out about Rescue Freedom? Yeah. Um, a lot of it would be you know, some some pretty similar kind of business tactics. I, I came out of the business world. You know, we've had some of our staff came out of the agency world. You know, we story brand is a huge part of it. Uh, for us, we're constantly kind of distilling down our story and, and improving it and trying to, you know, make it simpler. Um, so that's a, that's a big part of it. And then we would do a lot of like customer segmentation like you would in a business of who, who are our customers and what do they value? So we really look hard at who are the people, what do they value, um, what do they need from us? What are they expecting from us? You know, and really understanding where they're at, and then where where do we find them? What are those channels? Are they on social? Are they wanting to connect more in coffee shops? Uh, where do we find those people? Who who comes to events? Who needs the event as the place, either for them to come or for them to feel empowered to engage their community? Because the person who might be super excited to engage on social might be less likely to try to engage their business via their social media feed or forwarding emails that we're sending. So that might be the right tactic for them. But if we're saying we want to engage their community, we want to help them feel like they're an abolitionist. It's a part of who they are and they're inviting their community into it. So what's the mechanism for that? So for instance, that's where events have come in, where a lot of nonprofits are are moving away from events or they're turning their events more and more into just kind of auctions where it's just highly trans. I mean, I've been to some events where it's like, you don't even hear about the cause because they're so busy doing the auction items. And it yeah, might raise yeah. money, but it, it's going to raise money from people who are already sold. It's not the place where your most rabid fan is going to say, I'm going to bring, I'm going to sponsor a table and I'm going to get every one of my teammates from my company here because right. they just have to be a part of this. You know, so for us, we really try to yeah, say, who are, who are our people? What are they looking for? What channels are they, are they hanging out in? And, and how do we find them there in a way that is meaningful and invites them into the story? Uh, that sounds awesome, Jeremy. Uh, finally, the, maybe the most important question I ask is the same question that the young lady at Whole Foods asked me. How can people get involved in stopping human trafficking through Rescue Freedom? Thanks for asking that, that one. That's, that is, that's a big one for us. Um, so, you know, one of the things that's important to know is, is human trafficking is it's everywhere. You know, it's 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 across the street from the Whole Foods where you met that person and it's in India and it's around the world. And it's one of those things where, again, 
learning is a is an important first step because every human being that doesn't participate in exploitation is by default then a part of the solution. And the more that they do that, the more they invite their community into it. So we try to put out a lot of content that helps people learn about the issue, understand how they can be a beacon of hope and light in their community. Um, so a big, I would say a big first step is following us on social media. It's not just content about, hey, you can donate or it's the next donate opportunity. Uh, it really is about building community and building mechanisms to engage your friends in the fight. Uh, we really see our community as abolitionists as people who have taken that on as part of who they are to be beacons of freedom in the world. And so following us on social media, subscribing to the newsletter, um, and then we're pushing out ways of, we've got all kinds of tools if you wanna host a small campaign. If, it, if it's a dinner party, we've got tools to, to say, hey, I'm gonna have some friends over and engage them in this. And it might not raise a ton of money and that's okay. You're gonna build community, your friends are gonna have a great night and they're gonna feel like they had a night out with a purpose that did impact the world. There's opportunities to climb mountains, you know, there's opportunities to engage your, your businesses. And then, of course, obviously, like any traditional nonprofit, there's also opportunities to send in giant checks if you feel so compelled. <laughs> but we really want people to feel like they're invited into, into a community of abolitionists who are saying this is a part of who we are. I mean, that's what it took to end the legal slave trade in the world, you know, in the British Empire and then in the, in the United States is people who said, oh, you know, it's not just people who quit their jobs and start nonprofits. It was people who said, I'm an abolitionist. I'm an abolitionist you know, writer, I'm an abolitionist producer, I'm an abolitionist business person, I'm an abolitionist pastor, whatever, whatever it is you do to be someone who in that is setting people free, is bringing hope, is shining a light into dark corners of the world to bring hope to others. You know, it, it's such an important issue and, and it's all around us. I was just down in Texas uh, last week uh, and there's a sheriff running for Congress down there in, in a district south of town, District 22, I think it is. And uh, he's denying that there's any human trafficking or sex trafficking in his district. He has a million people in his district. He says it's a Harris County problem. It's a downtown Houston problem. It's not. It's everywhere. And there was a woman at the, at the meeting that I was at who said, you know, I, I had a young lady come to my door and try to sell me a, a product. And I, I just wanted to talk to her for a minute. And we just kept talking. And I invited her in. I kept asking her questions and realized very quickly she's been trafficked. She was, <laughs> she was kidnapped. And she rescued that young woman out of that. This is a woman knocking on the door of a of a uh, of a house in the suburbs. Wow. It's it's a very complicated issue because they'll take these kids and then they'll say, "Look, you owe us a thousand dollars to get started in this business, but you can live here." And then they never actually pay you, and they then they can't get the thousand dollars back, and then they slowly cut off communication with their family. It's slavery. Yeah, and yeah, it's absolutely. it's happening all around us, and you know we we can't deny it exists, and we have to be very aware when we see it. And I was in the airport maybe three months ago, and there was a young young girl just bawling her eyes out, and a guy who didn't look like a match for her, and uh, you know, talking to her and trying to calm her down in a very aggressive way. And you know, I just stepped in and said, "Are you okay? What's going on here? Is there anything you want to tell me?" And you know, the, you know, and I wouldn't have done any of that. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have I wouldn't be aware of any of that without you, Jeremy, and without Rescue Freedom, without the the work that you've uh, invited Betsy, my wife, and I into, and so I'm grateful for you. Rescuefreedom.org is the website. You can uh, donate there. You can host a dinner, or you can climb a mountain. Uh, but all of it uh, is for a great cause, and, and uh, that cause couldn't be in better hands than my friend Jeremy Valoran. Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show. Don, thanks for having me. You've been a huge part of, of our story, and uh, I, I want to thank you for investing in us with the StoryBrand framework, for helping us tell our story to, to, to people, and ultimately 
hopefully that together we're setting more people free and uh, inviting more people into a story of freedom themselves. So thank you. JJ, super helpful. I'm glad that we, you know, we're long overdue yeah. to spend because we have so many nonprofit leaders come, and we have so many businesses who come in the room. Like I, they they're working on their brand script for their company, and yeah. then they'll tell me, you know what? I also do. I also help this yeah. organization, and I would love to help them out. And just to give some tips, not only for people who are in the nonprofit space, but so many people in our tribe, in this like the Story Brand tribe, really are involved in nonprofits to some degree anyway, yeah. and making the world a better place outside even what they're doing with their own business. You know, one of my favorite moments in, in a workshop, it almost happens every time, nonprofits come and for some reason they think, oh, you know, it's probably more of a business thing. It's not for me. Absolutely not true. Yeah. And then they will read out loud, you know, they'll read samples of their brand script or something. Yeah. And these hundreds of business leaders will start screaming. <laughs> giving an applause because <laughs> they're doing all this amazing work. It's actually really, yeah. really cool to see. So if you're a nonprofit leader, come to a StoryBrand workshop. We'd love to have you. You can register at storybrand.com. Listen, music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a StoryBrand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your nonprofit. profit